Chapter 23 of The Wild Northland by William Francis Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 23. Casting off from camp on the morning of the 12th, we pushed right into the mouth of the canyon. At once our troubles began. The steep walls of smooth rock rose directly out of the water, sometimes washed by a torrent, at others beaten by a backwhirl and foaming eddy. In the center ran a rush of water that nothing could stem. Poling, paddling, clinging with hands and nails to the rock, often beaten back and always edging up again, we crept slowly along under the overhanging cliff, which leaned out two hundred feet above us, to hold upon its dizzy verge some clinging pine tree. In the center of the chasm, about a half a mile from its mouth, a wild cataract of foam forbade our passage. But after a whole morning's labor, we succeeded in bringing the canoe safely to the foot of this rapid, and moored her in a quiet eddy behind a sheltering rock. Here we unloaded, and, clambering up a cleft in the canyon wall two hundred feet above us, passed along the top of the cliff and bore our loads to the upper or western end of the canyon, fully a mile from the boat. The day was hot and sweltering, and it was hard work. In one of these many migrations between camp and canoe, it chanced one evening that, missing the trail, my footsteps led me to the base of a small knoll, the sides and summit of which were destitute of trees. Climbing to the top of this hill, I beheld a view of extraordinary beauty. Over the sea of forest, from the dark green and light green ocean of the treetops, the solid mountain mass lay piled against the east. Below my standpoint, the first long reach of the canyon opened out, a grim fissure in the forest, in the depths of which the waters caught the reflection of the sunlit skies above, glowing brightly between the walls of gloomy rock hidden beneath the level rays of the setting sun. I stood high above the canyon, high above the vast forest which stretched between me and the mountains, and the eye, as it wandered over the tranquil ocean upon whose waves the isles of light green shade lay gold-crested in the sunset, seemed to rest upon fresh intervals of beauty, until the solid ramparts, rent and pinnacled, silent and impassive, caught and riveted its glance. As their snow-white, motionless fingers carved in characters that ever last the story of earth's loveliness upon the great blue dome of heaven. We pushed through the dense underwood, loaded down with all the paraphernalia of our travel, and even Sir Vola carried his load of boots and moose meat. When we had finished carrying our loads, it was time for dinner, and that over, we set to work at once for the stiffer labor of hauling the canoe up the rapid of the canyon. For, remember, there was no hope of lifting her. She was too heavy, and the rocky walls were far too steep to allow of it. Up along shore, through rapid and eddy, we dragged our craft, for here the north side had along its base ledges of rock and bits of shore, and taking advantage of these, sometimes in the canoe and sometimes out of it in the water, we reached at length the last edge or cliff round which it was possible to proceed at the north shore. For a long time we examined the spot and the surrounding canyon, Jacques and I climbed up to the top above and then down on hands and knees to a ledge from which we could look over the chasm and scan its ugly features. Beyond a doubt, it was ugly, 
the rock on which we lay hollowed down beneath us until it roofed the shore of the canyon with a half cavern against which a wild whirlpool boiled up now and again sinking suddenly into stillness even if we could stretch a line from above the rock to where our canoe lay below it she must have been knocked to atoms in the whirlpool in her passage beneath the cavern but the distance was too great to stretch a line across the next and only course was to make a bold crossing from below the rock and gain the other shore up which it was possible to drag our canoe once over the thing would be easy enough for at least a couple of hundred yards more we climbed back to the canoe and imparted the results of our investigation to the other two men from the level of the boat the proposed crossing looked very nasty it was across a wild rush of water in the center of the canyon and if we failed to make a small eddy at the farther shore we must drive full upon the precipice of rock where below us boiled and seethed the worst rapid in the canyon a mass of wave and foam and maddening surge once out of the sheltering eddy in which we lay watching this wild scene we would be in the midst of the rush close to the rapid there was no time to get headway on the canoe it would shoot from shelter into furious current and then if it missed yon little eddy lug out and if you have any good angels away at home pray that they may be praying for you for down that white fall of water you must go broadside or stern on the more we looked at it the less we liked it but it was the sole means of passing the canyon and retreat came not yet into our heads we took our places calder at the bow jacques at the stern a blank and i in the middle then we hugged the rock for the last time and shoved out into the swirl of waters there was no time to think we rose and fell we dipped our paddles in the rushing waves with those wild quick strokes which men use when life is in the blow and then the canyon swung and rocked for a second and with a wild yell of indian war-whoop from calder which rose above the rush of water we were in the eddy at the farther shore it was well done on again up the canyon with line from rock to rock bit by bit until as the sun began to slope low upon the forest we reached the foot of the last fall the stiffest we had yet breasted above it lies our camp on the north shore above it will be easy work we will have passed the worst of the Aminica river made bold by former victory we passed our line around the rock and bent our shoulders to haul the canoe up the slant of water calder with a long pole held the frail craft out from the rock a blank and i were on the line and jacques was running up to assist us when suddenly there came upon the rope a fierce strain all at once the canoe seemed to have the strength of half a dozen runaway horses it spun us around we threw all our strength against it and snap went the rope midway over the water the boat had suddenly sheared and all was over we had a second line fastened to the bow this line was held by calder at the moment of the accident but it was in loose coils about him and of no service to stay the downward rush worse than all the canoe now going like an arrow down the rapid tightened the tangled coils around calder's legs and i saw with horror that he ran every chance of being dragged feet foremost from the smooth rock on which he stood into the boiling torrent beneath quicker than thought he realized his peril 
he sprang from the treacherous folds and dragged with all his strength the quick-running rope clear of his body, and then, like the Indian he was, threw all his weight to stay the canoe. It was useless. His line snapped like ours had done, and away went the canoe down the surge of water, down the lip of the fall, away, away, bearing with her our sole means of travel through the trackless wilderness. We crouched together on the high rock, which commanded a long view down the black canyon, and gazed wistfully after our vanishing boat. In one instant, we were reduced to a most wretched state. Our canoe was gone, but that was not half our loss. Our meat and tent had also gone with her, and we were left on the south shore of the river while a deep, wide, and rapid stream rolled between us and our camp, and we had no axe wherewith to cut trees for our raft, no line to lash them together. Night was coming on, and we were without food, shipwrecked in the wilderness. When the canoe had vanished, we took stock of all these things, and then determined on a course. It was to go back along the upper edge of the canyon to the entrance opposite our camping place of the last night, there to make a raft from some logs which had been collected for a cache in the previous year, then to put together whatever line or piece of string we possessed, and, making a raft, endeavor to cross to the north shore, and thus gain our camp above the canyon. It was a long piece of work, and we were already tired with the day's toil, but it was the sole means by which we could hope to get back to our camp and to food again. After that, we would deliberate on further movements. When men come heavily to grief in any enterprise, the full gravity of the disaster does not break all at once upon their minds. Nay, I have generally found that the first view of the situation is the ludicrous one. One is often inclined to laugh over some plight, which means anything but a laughing matter in reality. We made our way to the mouth of the canyon and again held a council. Jacques did not like the idea of a raft. He would go down through the beaver swamps along the south shore and, it might be, find the canoe stranded on some beach lower down. Anyhow, he would search, and next morning he would come up again along the river and hail us across the water in our camp with tidings of his success. So we parted. We at once set to work to make our raft. We upset the logs of the old cache, floated them in the water, and lashed them together as best we could with all the bits of line we could fasten together. Then we got three rough poles, took our places on the rickety raft, and put out into the turbid river. Our raft sank deep into the water. Down, down we went. No bottom for the poles, which we used as paddles in the current. At last we reached the shore of a large island, and our raft was thrown violently amidst a pile of driftwood. We scrambled on shore, broke our way through drift and thicket to the upper end of the island, and found a wide channel of water separating us still from the north shore. Wading up to our middles across a shallow part of this channel, we finally reached the north shore in our camp of the previous night. From thence we worked through the forest, and just at dusk we struck our camp of the morning. Thus, after many vicissitudes and much toil, we had got safely back to our camp, and though the outlook was dreary enough, for three large rivers and seventy miles of trackless forest lay between us and the mining camp to which we were tending, while all hope of assistance seemed cut off from us, still, after a hearty supper, 
we lay down to sleep, ready to meet on the morrow, whatever it might bring forth. Early next morning, the voice of little Jock sounded from the other side. He had had a rough time of it. He had gone through slough and swamp and thicket and finally had found the canoe stranded on an island four miles below the canyon, half full of water, but otherwise not much the worse for her trip. Let us make a raft and go down, and we would all pull her up again, and everything would yet be right. So, taking axes and line with us, we set off once more for the mouth of the canyon and built a big raft of dry logs and pushed it out into the current. Jacques was on the opposite shore, so we took him on our raft, and away we went down the current at the rate of seven miles an hour. We reached the island where our castaway canoe lay, and once more found ourselves the owners of a boat. Then we pulled up to the canyon again, and, working hard, succeeded in landing the canoe safely behind the rock from which we had made our celebrated crossing on the previous day. The day was hot and fine, the leaves of the cottonwood were green, the strawberries were in blossom, and in the morning a hummingbird had fluttered into camp, carrying the glittering colors which he had gathered in the tropics. But these proofs of summer boded ill for us, for, all around, the glittering hills were sending down their foaming torrents to flood the Aminica. On the night of the 13th, the river, already high, rose nearly two feet. The morning of the 14th came, and as soon as breakfast was over, we set out to make a last attempt to force the canyon. The program was to be the same as that of two days ago, to cross above the rapid and then with double-twisted line to drag the canoe up the fatal fall. We reached the canoe and took our places the same as before. This time, however, there was a vague feeling of uneasiness in everyone's mind. It may have been because we went at the work coldly, unwarmed by previous exercise, but despite the former successful attempt, we felt the presage of disaster ere we left the sheltering rock. Once more the word was given, and we shot into the boiling flood. There was a moment's wild struggle, during which we worked with all the strength of despair. A second of suspense, and then we are borne backwards, slowly, faster, yet faster, until with a rush as of wings and amid a roar of maddened water, we go downwards toward the canyon's wall. The rock! The rock! Keep her from the rock! roared Jacques. We might as well have tried to stop an express train. We struck, but it was the high bow, and the blow split us to the center. Another foot, and we must have been shivered to atoms. And now, ere there was time for thought, we were rushing stern foremost to the edge of the great rapid. There was no escape. We were as helpless as if we had been chained in that black canyon. Put steerway on her, shouted Jock, and his paddle dipped a moment in the surge and spray. Another instant, and we were in it. There was a plunge, a dash of water on every side of us. The waves hissed round and above us, seeming to say, Now we have got you. For two days you have been edging along us, flanking us and fooling us, but now it is our turn. The shock with which we struck into the mass of breakers seemed but the prelude to total wreck, and the first sensation I experienced was one of surprise that the canoe was still under us. But after the first plunge, she rose well, and amidst the surge and spray we could see the black walls of the canyon flitting by us as we glanced through the boiling flood. All this was but the work of a moment, and lo, breathless and dripping, with the canoe half-filled, 
we lay safe in quiet eddies where, below the fall, the water rested after its strife. Behind the rock we lay for a few minutes silent, while the flooded canoe rose and fell upon the swell of the eddy. If, after this escape, we felt loath to try the old road again, to venture a third time upon that crossing above the rapid, let no man hold our courage light. We deliberated long upon what was best to be done. Retreat seemed inevitable. Calder was strongly opposed to another attempt. The canoe was already broken, and with another such blow she must go to pieces. At last, and reluctantly, we determined to carry all our baggage back from the camp, to load up the boat, and, abandoning the Black Canyon and the Ominica altogether, seek through the Parsnip River an outlet toward the south. It was our only resource, and it was a poor one. Wearily, we dragged our baggage back to the canoe and loaded her again. Then, casting out into the current, we ran swiftly down the remainder of the canyon and shot from beneath the shadows of its somber walls. As we emerged from the mouth into the broader river, the sheen of colored blankets struck our sight on the south shore. In the solitudes of the north, one is surprised at the rapidity with which the eye perceives the first indication of human or animal existence, but the general absence of life in the wilderness makes its chance presence easily detected. We put to shore. There was a camp close to the spot where we had built our first raft on the night of the disaster. Blankets, three fresh beavers, a bundle of traps, a bag of flour, and a pair of miner's boots. The last item engaged Jock's attention. He looked at the souls and at once declared them to belong to no less an individual than Pete Toy, the Cornish miner. But where, meantime, was Pete? A further inspection solved that question, too. Pete was portaging his load from the upper to the lower end of the canyon. He evidently dreaded the flooded chasm too much to attempt its descent with a loaded canoe. In a little while appeared the missing Pete, carrying on his back a huge load. It was as we had anticipated. His canoe lay above the rapids. Ours was here below. Happy coincidence. We could exchange crafts. Pete would load his goods in our boat. We would once again carry our baggage to the upper end of the canyon and there, taking his canoe, pursue our western way. It was indeed a most remarkable meeting to us. Here were we, after long days of useless struggle, after many dangers and hairbreadth escapes amid the whirlpools and rapids of the Black Chasm, about to abandon the Aminica River altogether, and to seek by another route, well known to be almost impassable at high water, a last chance of escape from the difficulties that beset us. And now, as, moody and discouraged, we turned our faces to begin the hopeless task, our first glance was greeted, on emerging from the dismal prison, by a most unlooked-for means of solving all our difficulties. Little wonder if we were in high spirits, and if Pete, the Cornish miner, seemed a friend in need. But before anything could be done to carry into effect this new arrangement, Pete insisted upon our having a royal feast. He had brought with him from the mining camp many luxuries. He had bacon and beans and dried apples and sugar and flour, and we poor toilers had only moose meat and frozen potatoes and sugarless tea in our lessening larders. So Pete set vigorously to work. He baked and fried and cut and sliced, 
and talked all the time, and in less than half an hour laid out his feast upon the ground. I have often meditated over that repast in aftertime, and wondered if Pete really possessed the magic power of transmuting the baser victuals known to us as pork, beans, and molasses into golden comestibles, or had scarcity in the wilderness anything to say to it. It was getting late when we broke up from the feast of toy, and, loading once more all our movables upon our backs, set out to stagger for the last time to the west end of the portage. There the canoe of the Cornish miner stood ready for our service, but the sun was by this time below the ridges of the Aminica Mountains, and we pitched our camp for the night beneath the spruce trees of the southern shore. At break of day next morning, we held our way to the west. It was a fresh, fair dawn, soft with the odors of earth and air. Behind us lay the black canyon, conquered at last, and as its sullen roar died away in distance, and before our canoe rose the snow-covered peaks of the central Columbian range, now looming but a few miles distant, I drew a deep breath of satisfaction. The revulsion of long, anxious hours. End of chapter 23